This podcast is brought to you by Third World. Yo, that's all. We're just three immigrants talking trash. Talking trash. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the first episode of Three Immigrants Talking Trash. My name is Vanessa, and I am an immigrant. I'm here in LA. I am originally from Venezuela. I'm a writer, producer. Did. Who else is here? My name is Ayushi. You can call me Ayushers, and I'm also an immigrant. Yay! India, South Africa, Nigeria, we'll keep it going. My name is Manal, and you should only call me Manal. I was born in Dubai from Syrian parents. Wow, that, that, that's a very nice intro. <laughs> I was born in Dubai from Syrian parents. All right, that's Manal. <laughs> T-I-T-T. So we mentioned the word immigrant a lot. Of course, it's not everything that we are, but it's mainly what this podcast is about, about our immigration experience, the perks, the traumas, the spectrums of immigration, and how moving from one place to another can influence our identity and the way that we create. Okay, all right. What do you guys think about the term third world? Are you bothered by it? Do you think when somebody says, oh, that's third world, are you offended by it? No, I'm not offended by it because I think the third world really makes you appreciative of your time in the first world where <laughs> there's a lot of privilege. The term third world makes me think of iguanas that just run around like wild. And it also makes me think of the word load shedding, which is you have electricity and water certain times of the day, which was never a thing that I experienced in good old America. Things like that, I think like consistent. Personally, I'm reminded that I'm currently living in the third world and that's where I come from. Or for me, when I think about third world, I think about the amazing smell of jasmine in the streets of Damascus. Oh, I think about yeah. the street food, so much richness and culture, so much character, you know. Definitely. I miss that here. Definitely life is more facilitated and everything, but you miss that character. Like street food that makes you sick. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I used to think that when I was in the third world, like this is just the third world. But then when I moved to the first world, I experienced situations that I only thought that happened in the third world. <laughs> the meaning of third world started changing to me. And instead of just being a place, it's some type of behavior, totally, some yeah. type of like situation or behavior yes. that just needs yeah. development. And mentality. It's a mentality that needs development. <laughs> It's a work in progress. Yeah. No matter where it is. Yeah. Just dealing with that shit at work. I've been called a Syrian refugee, which I am not, in oh front God. of a development oh real estate client in the oh middle of God. a meeting by my boss. That is awful. That is so insensitive. Oh my gosh. She had heard him talk about philanthropic work that he does with his wife for the issues that were going on in Syria. Oh She's like, Manal here is a Syrian refugee. Oh so God. I've been called that at work. How rude. Like that's so third world thing to say. You know, like I had a job interview at a big media company that they post about culture and they have a huge following and they're based in LA and they're considered to create the culture of now. Okay. I have this interview with this crazy creative director who seemed to be very knowledgeable because he used like a lot of wordy words to show me that he went to school, you know, and I'm like, okay, I get it. He asked me two things, which I think that, wow, you should never ask this in a job interview. Are you gay? Am I allowed to ask you that? I even asked him, I don't think you're allowed to ask that, but yes, I am. And then the other question was, you have a work permit, so you're here legally, right? And then he asked, does that mean that ICE cannot fuck with you? 
Wow. What? Yeah. Can you believe he asked wow. if I oh cannot fuck with you? And this is a white male? A white male. <laughs> of course. Who is in charge of shaping culture and employing people. I am shocked. I have goosebumps. And I felt uncomfortable. But at the same time, I'm on a job interview and I'm trying to process. And I'm like, okay, this doesn't feel right, but I need to keep the conversation going, you know? And you know me, I get uncomfortable. I try to crack a joke. You stuck around? Yeah, I'm trying to understand his point of view. Why is he asking me this question? Obviously, he doesn't have enough immigrant friends and he only sees news. And are you HR, first of all? Are you a politician? Is this like a debate? Like, why are you asking me about ICE when I'm here for a producer position and we should be talking about something else? I know you want to get to know me. It's an opportunity for me to also respond to this point of view. How do we educate them in that moment? I'm trying to like educate him without getting affected. And at the same time, understanding that it's not my job to educate him. And he has a position that requires for him to be fucking educated because it's there to shape culture. So there's so many thoughts going through my mind at that moment. And I think I just asked him, how can you ask me that? No, ICE cannot fuck with me. I'm telling you, I have a work permit and I've been living here and working here for like eight years. And it's like, I do hate the organization, but at the same time, we cannot hate on people doing their job. What the fuck? He just made it worse. I think he just seems to be a very insensitive person. He probably lives in his like wife castle and with all kinds of privilege. This guy literally came from a place of ignorance. Like it wasn't hate, but he was also curious because I don't know, he thought that, oh my God, there's an immigrant here. Like, let me ask her all my questions about immigration. I'm like, bitch, I don't work for USCIS and I'm here for really the job position. So can we talk about that? This was under Trump and there was a huge crisis at the border. I don't know if he was just reading articles and that was in his subconscious and he's like, oh, immigrant. Oh, by the way, can I fuck with you? And I'm like, what? <laughs> that was in the back of my head through the whole interview. But I cannot show this because the immigrant always needs to be like, oh yeah, I'm here to educate you. Yep. And actually I am one of the good ones and I need to behave. Look how clean I am. <laughs> can you hire me? And I guess my point is some white people just think that they can freely be unprepared and have that bar so low. And as people of color, we always need to be overprepared mm -hmm. and still we might not be accepted. What do you think is your first language? My first language is definitely Hindi. I just have to talk to my mom on the phone to get into my like Indian swing of things. So. That's always been like a confusing thing for me because, you know, I'm born in an Arab country to Arab parents. You would think that Arabic is my native tongue, but it's not. I'm so much more fluent in English than I am in Arabic. My Arabic is so broken. But you also know like 10 languages. Four. <laughs> like literally, you're the only person I know that knows so many languages. You are the United Nations. <laughs> Pouvez-vous me dire dans quelle direction est la Tour Eiffel? Hel tatakallam al-lughatul arabiya? Disculpa, donde esta el baño? What other languages were going on in your home? It was mostly English and Arabic and sometimes French because our family is mainly Syrian and Syria was a French colony. So a lot of us are French educated. So I was growing up in Dubai. My first language was English, but then I went to a French school and my parents spoke Arabic and I had to learn Arabic eventually. Arabic was the hardest, man. I bet. I started speaking English when we moved to Nigeria at the age of two or three. I used to speak in Hindi just because I grew up in a very Indian family, you know, before I moved 
moved to Nigeria, I was with my grandparents and they only spoke in Hindi. So when I first moved to Nigeria, I would just talk to everyone in Hindi, like the driver or like the maid at our house. And they were like, what is this kid saying? That was so young. Yeah. When did you start learning English? I started learning English like super late, like at 15, 14. But you really mastered the language when you came to California at what, 22 or something? Absolutely. Oh my yeah. gosh, you are my hero. <laughs> Chica, tú sabes que tú fuiste siempre, siempre, desde preescolar la niña demasiado inteligente. Tú aprendiste a leer solita. Empezaste a comprar películas en inglés desde muy pequeña, desde que tenías 12, 13 años en pura películas en inglés y empezaste a leer y a, y a escribirlo. Y mejoraste un poquito, después tú dijiste que te ibas para afuera y te fuiste y empezó lo que empezó. It was like moving here at 20 years old that I started learning English, speaking to locals, working, studying, that I actually learned the language because back in Venezuela, my native language is Spanish. I went to school and everything, but it wasn't an international school or anything like that. Just like an English class here and there. This is pen. This is pencil. This is chicken. And I'm like, okay, bitch, can you give me the full sentence? <laughs> The way that I actually learned was just by watching shows like Friends <laughs> and Criminal Minds. I get you. So all my English was as colorful as the show Criminal Minds. I learned how to say sociopath, psychopath, rape. <laughs> All of that before learning. Hey, can you tell me what's in the menu? This makes so much sense because I understand why your text messages are so aggressive now. <laughs> everything is learned from criminal minds. I'm like, okay, girl, now I get it. Thank you for understanding me once again, friend. That's crazy because three of us are immigrants, but your experience of being specifically an immigrant that also has to learn the language, that's intense. Seriously. That's why I think I relate more to your parents than to you guys. Absolutely. You know, me and Ayushi were like third culture kids, born in our country or not, but then living in a bunch of other countries and speaking a bunch of languages <laughs> and relating to different cultures. You're like rooted, rooted. You grew up in Venezuela. When I met you, you were like hardcore. Yeah, I'm from Venezuela, bitch, and I'm proud. And our country is not in the best shape, but I love my country, you know? Yeah, dude, that was 10 years ago. 10 years ago, I was so passionate about it. Like, my country, my land. And then 10 years pass, the country is in shambles. The situation is just getting worse and worse that now I feel that, yeah, I'm from Venezuela. I'm desensitized of true. what's going on there a little bit. Once you keep hearing the same news over and over and over and over and over for 10 years, you start to wonder like, am I going to be able to see a change? Yeah. Or am I going to be here about this same situation for 20 more years? <laughs> It's crazy that just us being from different places just got to me here in LA. And I just realized that it's been eight years since we know each other. And we have talked about so many different things, but I don't think we have shared like our birth story. So maybe on this episode that we talk about origins, this can be something that we can share and just talk about birth story. So our birth stories, I think you should go first. Okay. So I was born in the 90s in Venezuela in a city called Ciudad Guayana. Basically, Ciudad Guayana is divided into two cities, San Felix and Puerto Ordaz. In Puerto Ordaz, the rich people live, and in San Felix, the poor people live. I was born in San Felix, 30 years ago, in a hospital called Guayparo. Naciste a las 5 de la mañana. 
no me hicieron cesárea ni nada, normal, muchos calambres, tuve muchos calambres toda la noche, toda la noche, fue horrible. This hospital was really, really poor. My mom was by herself without a partner, but in company of my grandma and my aunt. The experience was so traumatizing that my mom said, no more kids. And literally, no more kids. I am only child. <laughs> she has so many complications. It took like a whole day for me to come out. And she told me that while she was pushing, there were no beds. And this woman was walking in pain. And she was like, I need to sit. And for some reason, my mom's room was right there. And, she, and the doctor was like, okay, sit here while What? we look for you for, for a bed. And my mom was like... Hello, um, I know I'm poor, but oh I know God. my rights oh my and God. I need a bed for myself. So oh can my you God. please take this woman oh out God. and let me have my baby by myself? Yo le dije que yo no quería más personas en mi cama porque podía haber una contaminación o algo y era una bebé y no quería personas extrañas ni en mi cama y querían podemos y me la acostaron y todo. Y yo que no, que no, que no y me rehusé mucho que me la sacaron. Yo dije no quiero, no quiero, no quiero y no quiero y no quiero. Finally, they took the woman out, but my mom was literally about to give birth next to a stranger. And my biological dad was in jail because people like to traffic drugs. Oh. 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 Shit got deep. I'm going to need some wine for this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was like, in a nutshell, my, my, my birth story and how I came to this world in crime poverty and welcomed by women. Man, I was just destined to be gay and a rapper. I don't know why I didn't follow through with my rapping career, but I need to, I need to look into that. But what in that scenario made you think of rap? <laughs> I don't know. Oh my God, she's just <laughs> perpetuating stereotypes here. Listen, if somebody is going to establish stereotypes, let it be a person of color. Of yeah. color. Who has been exploited <laughs> by stereotypes. So... Please. Yeah. Okay. Please. Okay, I'll give you that. Okay, I'll go next. I I was born in a small town that is close to Delhi in India. It's called Ghaziabad in a hospital called Yashoda, which I just learned yesterday. My mom told me I was born a very ugly and heavy baby. Oh my God, you're a model. Yeah, I know. I'm like, what? And she was like, you're also like really yellow. And then we found out that you had jaundice and then yeah. you have to be in an incubator for like three to four days. And I was like, wow, How come you never mentioned this in like 30 years of my existence? And she's like, I don't know, because it just wasn't important. <laughs> I was born really, really fat as well. Like I was five kilos. I know. That's probably why we're like best friends. That's why you're my sister. Absolutely. <laughs> and I always have saliva like next to my chin. And I'll be like breathing like really heavily. <sighs> I feel like sometimes you do do that. I never liked carrying those babies. <laughs> yeah, but I was only child. So that was the only way that my mom needed to carry. You know, at the time, I think in India, female and feticide was a really big thing. And having a girl child as your first child was looked down upon. Was your family okay with you having a daughter? Were you okay with you having a daughter? Uh, that was the best moment of my life when uh, they told that you got daughter because I always was looking for daughter only. Although my mother wanted the first child, their grandchild has to be son. But after a moment or so, she also was equally very happy. And I was the one first who took you in my lap and then your grandmother. And after that, your mother. 
Soon after that, my dad left for Nigeria. And two years after that, we moved to Nigeria too. Me and my mom and my two-month-old brother. And that was quite an experience. That was your first time traveling on a plane, going through an airport. What was that whole experience like? When my husband got his job, his GM told him, you shouldn't bring your wife with you because here medical facilities are not good and elders also were not there to take care of me. So it's better to have her delivery in India than she can come here. So I had to travel after my son born. So having one child in my lap, one holding my finger, it was so tough, so tough. It, like, it was like a nightmare. I was thinking that <laughs> among three of us, only one will reach to Nigeria. <laughs> That's how I came into the world in a very protective family. My, my mom was pregnant with me. She was in a joint family and she was well taken care of and everyone was just telling her what to do. <laughs> and they were just excited to leave India and start their own life in Nigeria. Who would think of all places? <laughs> What about you, Manal? Let's talk about your birth story. So I was born in Dubai in a hospital called Al Wasl. My mom had a very difficult pregnancy. She was there for eight days. Ooh, eight days? She had to go through a C-section. She didn't even see me when I was born because she was under anesthesia. She saw me the next day. Oh. And she said that she was so sleepy. All she saw was big lips and spiky hair. That's you. Spiky hair? <laughs> But she was surrounded by my dad, my godmother, their best friends, very nice, tight group. <laughs> I love it. My mom's story was so traumatizing. I hear you guys. Yeah, and the whole family was there supporting us and giving us love. <laughs> and she had anesthesia and she had a C-section. And my mom is like, what are those terms? <laughs> Now that we talk about how we were born, what about how we were raised? I bet like some things were different and the culture that we grew up surrounded with. Let's talk a little bit more about that culture. Well, I grew up in Nigeria. I, I feel like I grew up in crime. <laughs> I would say that we constantly lived in fear that something would happen. I mean, we used to hide our cash and our jewels in these huge cans of flour and rice. And if ever there was like a knock at the door at any time, really, we would always fear that someone was here to rob us. And I often remember like hiding behind the curtain. That's why I don't actually think that my experience growing up, even as a toddler, I don't remember it being so pleasant, which just blows my mind because my parents think I had the best time ever. You can't tell me a single incident when Nigeria was horrible for you, except one robbery which happened. That also, I would say, very smooth robbery. <laughs> the robber is saying that, Madam, you take care of your children. We will do our job and go peacefully. And they did. One of them was playing with your brother and rest were taking away whatever they want. And they went away and they told, see you, Madam, again. And apart from that, I don't remember a single experience which was terrible for you. I also, when we moved to Nigeria, was terrified of these lizards that were outside our house. So for like a whole year, I was just be on my mom's lap. But also we lived in a town that was outside of Lagos called Ikorodu. It was like literally living in like a slum. 
in a foreign country, which is kind of ironic because the reason my parents left a very posh neighborhood of India was to chase the great immigrant dream of making more money and everything. But but actually, we lived in like pretty much like this like slum neighborhood. There were these iguanas everywhere. My mom, she loves iguana for some reason. And she fed it to me when I was a child and she told me that it was chicken. And I was like an idiot just eating and asking for more chicken. Can I get more chicken? (laughs) That was when my mom broke my trust. And that's when I decided to move to L.A. Since I was seven, I've been planning just to leave that place. (laughs) That's when she broke your trust. (laughs) But let's talk about being raised. Manal, what about you? I was raised by my mother and father. They are immigrants. They had moved to Dubai at a very young age and then they had me. They had a really tight group of friends and relatives. When we lived in one part of the city, we had a bunch of our loved ones living in the same building. And then we moved to another part of the city. They followed us. Once they got confirmation that it's cool, they would like dominate the rest of the building. But it made up for really good childhood memories. That's amazing because like the whole family together in one building. Yeah, It's interesting to me that both of your parents were immigrants because my mom, she was completely Venezuelan, born, raised there. My stepdad was from Czech Republic and he will travel. Even though my mom is fully Venezuelan and her side of the family was completely rooted and they were farmers. You know, I got to see what means to be native. I also got to experience what it's like to move to a different place and still succeed because my stepdad, he succeed when he moved, even though he had this thick accent. At the same time, my other stepdad was from Spain and I got to go to Spain once a year and I started to experience what traveling meant and what getting into another culture meant and just trying different foods and just traveling. I felt that if I didn't have that side of me growing up, of that experience, I would probably never like adventure so much to travel. D-I-T-T, D-I-T-T, dead, D-I-T-T. Dead. Is it easier to associate identity to race? Is the place where you were born always going to be tied to your identity? Like when you guys say, where are you from? You say mm. you're from the place that you were born or you're just mm. from LA. Like yeah. where are you from? Every time someone asks me where I'm from, I'm like, okay, you're going to have to sit down for this because I need five minutes <laughs> of your time because it's complicated history. So I was born in India, raised in Nigeria, raised in South Africa, then I moved to LA and now I'm back in South Africa. So I don't know who I am. You figure it out. <laughs> I would say our identity is our experience. It's whatever we've experienced in life, you know, whether it's our upbringing, our failures, our success, everything all meshed in one, all our lessons. I wouldn't say it's where we come from. I think it's everything that we've experienced. It's weird because in Arab culture, you're from wherever your parents are from. So like my parents are Syrian, but I was born and raised in Dubai. I would go to Syria for three months in the summer to see my grandma. That's all I knew, the beach and my grandma's house, you know. And then I stopped going to Syria after the age of 15, I think. But for the longest time, I would say I'm Syrian. But then when I moved to the States, it became more complicated because in the States, they Mm. consider where you're from is where you were born or where you were raised, where you spent the longest part of your life. So when they would hear I'm Syrian, but I was born and raised in Dubai, they're like, oh, okay, so you're, you're Emirati. Guys, 
People think that Dubai is a country. Dubai is not a country. Dubai is a city within a country called the United Arab Emirates. I can't say I'm Emirati because the Emirates don't give citizenship to non-locals. So never in my life have I ever said I'm Emirati. I don't even speak the Emirati dialect. So I just started saying I'm from Dubai mm. with Syrian heritage. Mm. With Syrian heritage. But can you say also, for example, if you have a passport from a country, can you say I am from this place, even though you were not born raising this place like I have a Spanish passport so I can be like yeah I'm from Spain <laughs> I'm not from Spain but is it a document part of your identity and can you really claim it what's your passport my passport is Indian but I have a permanent residency for South Africa and nothing from Nigeria thanks Nigeria So my passport is Syrian. Currently, Syria is at war and is a completely failed state, so I can't even use it. When you have a citizenship from a country that has so many sanctions placed on it, you become persona non grata. And for that, I recommend that you watch the movie The Man Who Sold His Back, because it's very relatable. The Man Who Sold His Skin. Wait, what is the meaning of persona non grata? A persona non grata is an unacceptable or unwelcome person. I should take personal offense to that. So I'm a person now in Aguata from the U.S. No, bitch, you have an Indian passport. It counts. Just to go to hell, I need a visa with my Syrian passport. Oh, don't say that. <laughs> Got deep. Honestly, I had no idea. That hit my heart. Like, wow. Did you change the whole molecules of the room? We were like, I know. We were like, lizards, Aguata. <laughs> And then Banal came, it's like, I am persona no grata and I need a visa to go to hell. I also have a deep voice. We both grounded immediately and we're like, what is this life that we're living? We need to go outside and protest. I need more alcohol for this shit. So your parents, Banal, they moved from Syria to Dubai. Like, why Dubai? The reason my parents knew about Dubai was because the Arab countries around the UAE started learning about Dubai being this new place for business opportunity because it was such a fresh market. And they really knew how to invest in the country and get it to grow and become what it is today. But back then it was so simple. We had like one shopping mall. We didn't really mingle with the locals. It was just like the expats from everywhere, other Arab countries in Europe mostly, and then the locals. There wasn't much of a mix. The UAE is a Muslim country and the UAE does not grant citizenship to people who are not from there, from Emirati tribes. So I was born as a guest. My parents were there as guests. They had like temporary work visas that they had to renew every couple of years. When you're born in the U.S., that baby gets a U.S. passport. When you're born in the UAE and you are not Emirati, you don't get no passport. If you're Syrian in Dubai, you are Syrian. If you're Pakistani in Dubai, you're Pakistani. You're never Emirati if you weren't born into an Emirati family. People who are part of my generation that grew up in Dubai and saw it become what it is now, were like, guys, we've been in the UAE for 25 to 35 years. We were born and raised here. We are of the city. Give us our rights. Grant us our citizenship, whether we are Muslim or Christian or not. For example, my father immigrated to Dubai when he was around 25 and he's still there. And right now he's 65 mm. and he is still not a citizen of the United Arab Emirates. You're joking. 
and he's still got to renew his visa. And he has contributed to the economy of the UAE more than a lot of Emiratis that I know. That's insane. Where would he go if he doesn't like, like, where would he retire? Immigration really is for people who have the privilege of being able to afford it because he figured it out. No, I'm sorry. If I was your dad, like I would lose my shit. That's what I oppose the most. Living in a country, contributing all your life to it, contributing to the economy. And still they tell you, no, thank you. Not you. Not this time. After like 45 years and plus, like you say, like you put it perfectly. You were born as a guest in your own country of birth. My experience now in the US, living in LA and investing in LA, I by now, six years later, I consider myself an Angelino, but I cannot travel freely. I cannot have the same rights as any other American because I'm still waiting on my fucking papers. Six years, a file sitting in a corner of a room gathering dust. Of course, you're in a limbo and that's one of the worst stage. I get it. I completely get it. Completely in limbo. Like while waiting, I can't visit my parents. I don't want to get into detail about what stage of immigration I am right now. Obviously, I'm here legally. I have a work permit. I have a social security number, but I'm still waiting to be approved access to a green card and then citizenship. When you live in a country for six, seven years, it becomes a part of your identity. Of and course. that's why you wonder, when can I officially say that I am an Angelino? Absolutely. You're probably more Angelino yeah. than you are anything else right now because you've made a home there. You have a partner mm-hmm. there. You know, I I've been living here for 10 years. I study here. I work here. I adopted two dogs. I created a company here. I paid taxes here. You forgot to mention me. Of course. (laughs) The sister I never wanted, but I'm so grateful to have. But in a sense, like I came out here and really learned about myself and got curious about my identity and started alive here and immediately started to put my roots because I want to work here, live here, contribute. And it's been 10 years. And to don't be considered a resident, a citizen legally. I mean, something is wrong. Something is wrong. Or when I read comments about immigration without documents, like they should do it legally, bitch. Legally takes so long and it really is for privileged people. Immigration is expensive. You got to have the Immigration is expensive. I, on the other hand, spent seven years there, worked so hard, paid taxes, got kicked out last year. So... And I did everything legally. So I don't know. America itself needs to tell us, like, what are we supposed to do? You're literally answering the question why they don't do it legally. There you go. You did it legally with all the privilege, all the sweat, effort and financial investment. Lawyers. And still, no, thank you. That was the answer. Still, no, no yet. No, not you. No, thank you. Not for you. You know what I just, I I just want to ask why should I pay taxes so much in taxes when I'm denied a visa for a country for that financial year? You know what I mean? Okay, okay. I'm going to take the liberty to shine a light on a specific part of your story. So Ayushi is the typical example of a law-abiding immigrant in the United States. She's been working as an actress for six to seven years in the U.S., constantly on what we call here an O-1 visa, which is a visa given to people with exceptions 
exceptional abilities. You got to renew it every three years. So think about this, guys. Six years you are working in the United States and paying taxes while hearing about the former president, Donald Trump, only paying $780 in taxes. $750. $750. And then comes a time to renew your visa yet again for the third time. Suddenly it's denied. So they don't take into account the six years financial investments you did. Yep. Not only working as an actress, but working for American brands. You can find her on Google ads, Amazon ads. She's in national TV. Right now, if you're in North America and you turn on the TV, you might see a State Farm ad with Ayushi in it, but she's not allowed to be in the country. Had to go through eight hours of makeup to be in an episode of Star and having to pay a part of her fucking salary to the U.S. government only to be denied immigration later on. I'll never understand why something like that happens. But what you said about not you, not this time, maybe another time, that's exactly what it feels like. It feels like you can do everything right. And then even then it could be not enough. And my only question is, then why make me pay taxes? <laughs> like, you know, like, <laughs> because when you're old, you can probably claim your social security from here and still get like, I don't know, like $30 a month. Now I think that it can also go to another immigrant, you know, somebody else who doesn't pay taxes. I'm like, okay, I pay taxes for you, I guess. You got it, buddy. Ayushi, how long did you have to leave the country when your latest visa was denied? I had a week to leave the country. I actually was told I needed to leave ASAP. So a week might have been too long, but I mean, I couldn't have packed my entire life for like seven years in boxes within three days. And I found out two days before Christmas. So factoring in Christmas, my birthday and New Year's, I did pretty well for a week. I packed up everything in, in seven days and sold my car. My boss of like four years sent me a text to say, so sorry to hear about this, but I'm sure you'll be back. Really? Are you going to make me come Back? What's going to make me come back? Instead of being like, this is ridiculous. Let me help sponsor your visa and, and get this done. Yeah. Like, so sorry to hear that. I'm sure you'll come back. Sometimes you might get the immigration system needs reform. Yeah. <laughs> My favorite. <laughs> They're not thinking about you, dude. Everyone's so busy with their life and their kids and their insurance plans. I guess you're right. But no matter what happens in my life, like moving forward, it just feels that I could never be happy again without any sense of fear. That night was the last time that I was happy, completely delusional that the next day my whole life was going to change. This is an example of how the North American immigration system causes trauma. <laughs> yeah. Like I think even booking a Netflix show feels like, should I be happy about this? Is there trouble around the corner? I think I never honestly gave a fuck about immigration until I came and I live in a different country, this country being the United States and really learning a little bit more about how this country came to be this nation, moving from one part of America to another part of America and seeing like a whole different world, living the life of an immigrant for like 10 years. I'm like, oh, okay. Now that they denied my friends possibility to stay here and continue working here, something is wrong. And they also might still deny yours. They can deny mine, actually. How can that be possible? I've been living here for 10 years. I pay taxes and all of that. So 
every time that I go to a DMV or like I get a job or like I get to do anything with the government, I need to show extra paperwork. So I always understood that I was an immigrant. But then I got the different understanding of like, you might not be wanted in the place that you've been working and establishing your life for the past decade. Yes, you are an immigrant, but that doesn't mean that you're welcome. No, you're easily disposable at any time, no matter how much you've invested. And I'm sorry, you call it home. Home doesn't call you home yet. So (laughs) Exactly. That is the word that I was looking for, easily disposable. And that's something that has really marked me being told that you're easily disposable and working in the creative field and really being told that all the time that you're really easily disposable. I have something wrong with that. (laughs) Fuck, bitch. I'm not easily disposable, actually. I am going to stay here. No accepting anymore. Being this quiet immigrant, being like, yes, I'll take it. Yes, of course, you can move my life. And that's easy to say, but more difficult, you know, if you are in that situation and you have to deal with that. But I want to be in that mind place of, no, I'm not easily disposable. And if I want to stay here, I can fight for that. And this country is so advanced and have the systems for me to actually fight for my rights. I know you say fight for your rights. You used to say that to me all the time. And I think that after a while, though, you don't have enough fight left in you. You've done everything you can from my own experience. I've figured that it's important to just keep options open. I think I put all my eggs in one basket. Say, for example, that country doesn't want you. There's definitely another country in the world where you can establish a life, be successful. When I asked my immigration lawyer, what happens if 10 years pass, I've invested my life here, I open a company, I've hired Americans. The day of my interview finally comes, judgment day, and they deny my papers. Then I'll have 30 days to leave. Yeah. That's like after spending 10 years. Or you can sue the government. Get this. So this is the other solution that they gave me. This whole process when my waiting went from six months to a year, two years, three years, okay, six years now, I approach my lawyers and I say, okay, what's, what would be the next step? Just tell me what can get the ball rolling. What you can do now is sue the government for taking too long to process your application. So it's like fight after fight after fight, money, money, money. You got to pay for this lawyer. You got to pay for this application. You got to pay for this photocopy. All while being at the mercy of the decision of your immigration officer that's going to look over your file. And now they might look over your file with hate because you're suing, you know, who the fuck do you think you are? That's the thing. I was like, uh, Mr. Lawyer, don't you think that'll leave like a sour taste in their mouth that I've sued them and then... They look at my file, they be like, oh, that's a bitch that sued. And they're like, no, they don't take this personally. They're different employees. Man, and I feel like we're always going to be fighting no matter where we are. Like we're women, we are person of color and I'm gay. So I'm always going to be fighting and being like, yes, I do deserve a place in the table. You're not going to open the door for me. I don't give a fuck. I'm going to open a tunnel. Yeah. I'll create my own table, whatever it is. I am an immigrant. We are very resourceful people. Yeah, We're just three immigrants talking trash. Talking trash. Okay, we have talked a lot about the traumas of immigration. Let's talk a little bit about the perks of immigration. Get it high, legally. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, that's one. Another one is, you know, being able to, as a gay person, live a proper life with, you know, health insurance and... Rights. Rights. (laughs) God bless America, baby. I wanted to say rights, but then I started to think that some people in America that are gay, they still have no rights. I see things like what's happening in Tennessee. And honestly, that looks so terrible to me. So handmade still. 
And that's why, once again, the term, their world for us, it's not a place anymore, but it's just some type of behavior that really needs development, some type of mindset. Even in countries like the U.S., where we consider to have, you know, an advanced law system, you still have LGBTQ plus community members suffering as if they are living in a third world country. That's why guaranteeing full work rights to people from the LGBTQ plus community should absolutely be at the federal level. Absolutely. For me, California is like heaven for gay people. And I know, you know, we still have ways to go, but you can live as a, a gay person and have rights just like any other citizen of the United States. And for me, that is like a privilege that I do not take for granted any day of my life because being a gay woman, I, it is illegal for me to be myself yeah. in the country that I was born in. You know, I have to abide to Islamic law, which prohibits homosexuality and you can face legal challenges like jail. It's so sad that I have to leave my home country. It's so sad that my culture has so much restriction when it comes to having a fluid sexuality. You know, it's not up to right. you. It's, it's up to me to decide what to do with my emotions and with my body. I'm not going to let the government or the religion dictate who I am to love, you know. Absolutely. Isn't it true that you cannot even mail a vibrator to Dubai? Yeah. Talk about Handmaid's Tale. Some of that stuff still exists in certain countries, you know, like if I were to send a vibrator to my cousin in Dubai, it would be stopped at customs because sex toys are not allowed in the UAE. Oh, my God. Okay, any other perks about immigration? I definitely think that in America, you can get paid better in comparison to other places like South Africa. Of course, I know that, you know, even in the U.S., in the entertainment industry, and that's a topic for another day, entertainers still get exploited in terms of lower wages for high quality work. But I do think that just as a performer, I've noticed that the wages there are much better than in South Africa. Like the fact that we have a union there, a sag after union, which I don't think I ever appreciate as much as I do now. So um, that was definitely a perk for me, I think. And of course, you know, being in a place where I met people of all kinds and also safety, which for me was a really big thing coming from countries like Nigeria and South Africa, where I never felt safe, don't feel safe. So, you know, being able to like just drive with your windows down was just like such a luxury. Like I, we never do things like that here. So why do you sign up for this podcast? I signed up so I could... What do you mean sign up? Like like subscribe or like be part of the podcast? We have lived together for two years. We have talked about creating a podcast since the first conversation that we had together. And finally, we decided to create one when ironically, one of us is not in the same room. Right, man. So ironic. So crazy. I was just going to say that we literally went through quarantine together. The entire pandemic of 2020, we were together, like locked up in a house. Like we didn't have yeah. anything better to do. We could have started a podcast then. Yeah. But no, it had to take some life changing event for us to do this. Talk about immigration. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that's the reason why I signed up is because I just want to be able to see my two best friends and my roommates and my family every week. And also, it's so easy to talk to you guys because this is stuff that we talk about all the time. And I think it's high time that other people also know the struggles of immigrants, just because I think the world is like finally opening up to other issues, right? Like what's happening in Israel and Palestine, what's happening with BLM? Like, why do we not hear enough being said about 
immigrants, the struggles of people like us? Why is it that our friends and people who do know immigrants aren't saying enough about immigrants? I think we also need that kind of solidarity. So maybe this podcast is one step in that direction to have awareness about what we go through. We get to show immigrants of our generation who are not born and raised here of Latin parents or Arab parents. We are immigrants. Yeah. Like we are the first of our family migrating right. to this country and trying to set up shop. I don't see content with people like us. We speak multiple languages. Just because I'm Arab doesn't mean that I'm wearing a burqa screaming Allahu Akbar because that's all you see in the news. I'm wearing Brain Dead, which is an LA-based brand. I like streetwear and I make videos for a living. We're like literally your regular millennial. Okay, every time we wrap an episode, we are donating to a different organization. So this time we're donating $100 to PCRF. Palestine Children's Relief Fund. They've been working in Gaza for 30 years. Their office were bombed. I saw what they were doing on Instagram and the work seems really legit. Thank you guys for sharing your experiences. We are going to keep talking about immigration, about traumas, the perks and the spectrum of immigration. And we're going to have guests eventually. So the more people we get listening to this podcast and supporting immigrant content, the more we will get to develop. Please befriend an immigrant and try to listen past your biases, past their accent. I'm pretty sure they will have something good to share with you. Oh, I love that. Yeah. If you didn't hear anything, I really hope you take that away. That is such a good point. Get vaccinated, guys, if you have the privilege. D-I-T-T, 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 D